Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Well, happy Palm Sunday to you. Yeah, I mean... So far as the liturgical calendar goes, it's a big deal. Yay, Palm Sunday. Um, We're actually taking a one-week break in the book of Mark this week uh, because, I don't know if we just didn't time it right or what, but Palm Sunday will come at the end of April if you're following along in this series, Um, which honestly, you know, we thought about preaching it out of order, and we don't really want to do that. I don't really want to do that to, to Mark, that Mark. Um, you know, let him, let him make his argument for who Jesus is and what Jesus' mission was about, and let him do it in order. So we don't want to do that. But it did put me in an awkward position because Alex is going to preach the other Palm Sunday sermon, and I didn't want to steal his thunder. And so it's like, yeah, it's like I'm going to take all your good points away. Um, so I thought, well, we're going to have to approach this a little bit differently. And I actually think that it gives us a good opportunity because Palm Sunday is so much about the fulfillment of Scripture, especially the way that Jesus comes into the city. It is such a huge fulfillment of Scripture, everything down to the donkey, um, that, that it's, it's a good opportunity to go back and kind of look at some of what's happening in the Old Testament, some of what's happening in the mindset of of first century Jews as they, as, they, as they think about this. And so it's a good opportunity to go back to Isaiah 52. So I want to go there this morning. As I was working on it this week, though, I'm reading another book, uh, Tim Keller's uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Have any of you guys read that book? It's thick. And it's, it's, for Keller, it's, it, it leans a little academic. It's actually really helpful, though. I've enjoyed it. Been working through it slowly over several months, but there was an there was an illustration that he had in there this week that that when I read it, I said, "Oh, well, that's actually quite helpful for understanding the kingship of Jesus." So we think of Jesus as king, but that's really an abstract thought to us in some ways. And I thought the illustration that he had in there was really helpful, so I'm going to steal his work. I'm going to steal his work and give you that illustration or give you pieces of it. Um, a, a lot of you know who Elizabeth Elliot is. Yes, she's a South American, well, she's, she's Belgian by birth, but um, was a missionary uh, in South America to Native peoples that didn't have uh, the Bible translated into their language. And she's probably most known because her husband was killed by Natives in South America. So when we think of Elizabeth Elliot, you think of her husband, Jim. He's a kid from Portland. Um, who got killed in the 1950s uh, on mission for God. She wrote a book in 1966 called No Graven Image. And it was a book about a, it was a fictional work. It was a book about a girl named Margaret, who oddly enough was a missionary to South American native tribes. And she, you know, this girl Margaret, she, she feels called by God to go into this work. She studies um, the, the, the interesting thing about 
Bible translation, especially when you don't have the language to do it from, is it's highly relational work. It's one thing to have the academic side of things figured out. Um, how linguistics work, how different uh, languages come together and form, and how you could possibly get you know, a, a Greek or a Hebrew or an English translation and get it into a, a native language. It's a lot of work, a lot of work. But she, she tells this story of Margaret, the, this, this girl who goes down there, and um, she, she spends years building relationships with these people, trying to get to know them. And she meets this one guy, Pedro, who comes into the South American community, and he knows Spanish, and he also knows this native language. And so, she, so he becomes her absolute key for being able to understand the linguistic structure of this and go back and translate it from the Greek and the Hebrew and get, get them a version of the Bible. The other thing is if you're a missionary in the middle of nowhere, it is good to have uh, medical training because that's, a, that's actually a key way to get into communities where you don't know, um, where you don't know people. In fact, I used to work, um, I spent four and a half years um, as a print designer working for uh, World Concern up here in Shoreline, um, which does a lot of work throughout the world. And one of the ways that they go into communities is by helping with water projects and helping with medical projects, because that's how you build trust with people. You take care of people. You serve them. You serve them. So this is what she was doing as well. And um, he ends up getting a wound in his thigh. And that wound gets infected. And so, you know, 1950s, she's thinking through, well, what do you do with this? Well, we've got penicillin. And so she gives him a shot of penicillin. But she didn't know that he was allergic to it. And so he ends up going into, I believe it's called anaphylactic shock. I'm looking at the doctors. Yes, they said, that's it. That's how you pronounce that. He goes into anaphylactic shock. And it takes a while, and she is praying over him, and she's praying to God, and his wife is screaming at her, what have you done to my husband? And she, she's, she's panicking because in her mind, this is work that God has called her to. What is God doing here? This is the link. This is God's provision. I feel called to this work. I'm doing God's work. What else is Bible translation if it's not God's work? And the reason this book was so controversial is because in common Christian reading circles, we like things very buttoned up. Of course, if you feel called to serve God, God will provide what you need, and you'll have exactly, you'll have exactly what you need to complete the work, and, and God will honor you for the work. They like the nice buttoned-up stories. But Pedro dies. Pedro dies. God, God does not act in the way that she expects him to. And he dies. And her family is beyond ticked off at her. This is highly relational work. So she loses all relational progress with this community. How, even if she gets a, a, a translation of the scriptures, how will she ever break back into this community? And she realizes she won't. That this is it. That her life's work is, is over. Now, it's fictional work, right? But she later reveals, again, she's known for her husband's death, 
But she later reveals that this is something that happened to her. Though this was a man that was murdered, she wasn't directly responsible for his death. But that she lost the key piece there, and she was using this book as, as her means of working this out with God. What does it mean when I've fully followed your calling? I'm doing your work. I'm doing these things, and it doesn't work out. And on the last page of her book, the, the No Graven Image book, She's, she's working through her concluding thoughts and she's recognizing that she had made an image of God that worked how she expected him to work. He wasn't her king. He was, his, he was her accomplice. The work that she felt called to do, that she had the desire to do, that what God really was in her life was her accomplice, not her king. Not her king. And this morning, as we look at Palm Sunday, it is the celebration, it is the marking of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the fulfillment of prophecy, but he does not come in as your accomplice. He comes in as your king. He comes in as your king. Life does not always work out as we expect, but we yield to him not because he does what we expect him to do, not because he meets our expectations, we worship him because he is our king, even when it's not working out. I thought her illustration was helpful. I hope you do too. The response to Palm Sunday is a self-evaluation of how you see Jesus in your life. Is he actually your king that you're bowing down to? Or is he just a figment of your imagination that you're comfortable with? Jesus is highly intentional. When he does something, he is always saying something with it. If you look at Jesus' first miracle, it's one of my favorite. Jesus is a venter. He takes water and he makes it into wine to keep a party going. Yes. Yes. That is his first miracle. But he's saying something with that. He's, he's foreshadowing his own wedding, his own wedding supper, in which he will have to provide the wine yet again for that wedding supper. He's saying something with that. It's going to be his blood that will, that will bring the required wine to get that party going. He's saying something with that. And if you look at all of his miracles, he's saying something with that too. It's a rebuke of a broken world, and he's bringing something that is true of the kingdom of God, and he's making it true now. The blind see, the deaf hear, the demon possessed, the demon is exercised, and, and they're pulled, pulled away from the chains of that. Those things aren't true of the kingdom of God. And before Jesus gets there and does a miracle. But he's making a statement with that when he does that. You also see it in his first teaching. The first recorded teaching that we have of Jesus is in Luke 4. And the first thing he does is he has, he has someone bring him the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, would you bring that to me? And he pulls out Isaiah 61. What we have marked as Isaiah 61. Jesus knew where it was at in the scroll. But he pulls it out, 
and he links it directly to himself. In, in the reading of this, you're seeing this fulfilled in Jesus. He directly links himself to what Isaiah was talking about. And so if we know something about Jesus, that he's so highly intentional with what he does, Jesus isn't just going to walk into Jerusalem. Not, 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 not knowing all of that. He's so intentional that, that he's going to make a statement by how he enters the city by the manner with which he enters the city. It's not his first time in Jerusalem, but it's the first time walking in as their king. All four gospel accounts pick up on his triumphal entry. All four of them. Some of them get a bit more detailed. Uh, Matthew and John specifically quote Zechariah 9. That's where we get the, they're letting you know, this, this fact that he's riding in a, on a colt is a big deal, or the donkey, however you want to translate that. And he depicts this humble shepherd king coming into the holy city, riding on a donkey. And he quotes this, he says, fear not, this is Zechariah 9.9, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In the back of the minds of the Jewish people was this idea of a coming Messiah that would finally rescue them. Uh, the rescue is a bit different than what they think. The rescue is a bit different than what they think. They're expecting a political leader to come in. They're similarly disappointed. But they, they knew that in the end, God would choose to dwell with them in Zion, Jerusalem, that this would be this, his seat of power, this would be his capital, that he would come in. And so Psalm, Psalms, Psalm, Psalms, there's an S in there. Psalm 132 picks this up. It says this in 132, 13 to 16. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And here comes the blessing. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. They know this. God is a faithful king. But by the time they get to this text, when, 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 when they're looking back and reading this, when especially the people of Isaiah's time are going back and reading this, they're sitting in, as, as a remnant of God's people. Babylon has come in, Assyria has come in and laid waste to them. They've laid waste to the city. And they're waiting for God's faithful response. What is he going to do? Is he going to come back as the king? Is he going to set things right and especially for the later hears, with an occupying power like Rome. I want you to think back to a time in your life. I don't know if you want to close your eyes. You, you do you. Think about it. I want you to think back to a time when you thought all was lost and God came through for you. Or if you've not experienced that, just think about a time where God's blessing was at the forefront of your mind. Maybe this is you at the altar getting married, and you listen to your spouse speaking vows over you, and, and, it, and it hits you or impacts you. Or if, you have, um, if you've had a cancer diagnosis, and we have a good friend of ours who had a stage four cancer diagnosis, and that walked back into remission. It was incredible. But I remember him telling me about 
hearing those words from the doctor, the scans are back. They're, they're empty. They're empty. You're in remission. It's incredible. I know for Melinda and I, um, we hit the water first just in case. Uh, you know me. I'm going to talk about my sons and might get weepy. I know for Melinda and I, we, um, our first pregnancy, we, um, we went to the doctor, our first appointment at UW, great hospital. We went to, the, went to a doctor's appointment at UW, and we got our first ultrasound. And you know, you're, you're rookies. You've never done this before. Not quite sure what to expect. And we go into the ultrasound room, and they're doing the scan, and they got the jelly or whatever they're doing. And, and they're, they're pulling up this image on the screen. And we think this is neat, because we've seen ultrasound pictures before, and they're black and white, and they're cool. And like, we're like super excited. And you know, you're, you're young kids. What the hell do you know? And you're, you're, you're watching her scan and look around, and it takes a little while. And you know, the technicians, they never say anything to you. It's dumb policy. Come on, help us out. Help, don't, don't kill it. Just kill the anticipation for us. But, but we're in there, and, and they take us back to our doctor's office, and he starts giving us statistics. Hey, this is really common for this to happen. You, like, you know, there's enough. Here we go. He's explaining to us, like, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't overexercise. You didn't do anything. It just didn't work out. And those of you who experienced that know, know the pain of that. It still chokes me up. It still chokes me up. And he goes, you'll come back at the end of the week and, and you'll do this. And you'll do another scan just to, you know, just to check and we'll kind of see what steps you need to take from there. And we go home and you lose it. It all is lost. There's nothing more important to a parent than a kid. And at the time, he was the size of a grain of rice. There's nothing more important to the world in me, to me. And to think that we had lost that was so devastating. But we go in on a Friday, we go in for another ultrasound, and we're in there we're with the technician, and we've just had the worst week, the worst week. And we go in there, and she's scanning, but this time you hear the <laughs> And again, they won't talk to you. They will not tell you what it is. But you're going, come on, like that's a heartbeat, isn't it? Like heartbeat means life, doesn't it? Doesn't it? She goes, yeah, heartbeat means life. Like, there's no heartbeat, there's nothing residual for something that's no longer living. And we realized that we had scanned too early, earlier in the week, but they had somehow caught a heartbeat on this end. Having, having been at a point of devastation and then brought to this point of euphoria, I can tell you where I stood in that room. I can still tell you what the technician looks like. I can tell you where the screen was. I remember the black and white image. I remember the blue dots and red dots, whatever those mean, I think it's blood. And, and I just rem I remember, the, I could draw you the layout of the room. It's so, so close in my mind. 
to have an image like that and just a memory of God showing up and being there with us. It was a fluke. It's a total fluke. But emotionally, we were there with it, with that, and, and just feeling the weight of that. It's one of the best moments of my life. And, and Jeremiah is here in the third row, which is just incredible. Just incredible. I, I want you, when you go to Isaiah 52, to think like that. How devastated is it to be the people of God that he seems to have rejected? They are the worst covenant partner. All the Old Testament is, is, a, is a, if, if it is a testament to God's faithfulness, it is a testament to the unfaithfulness of Israel. They repeatedly screw it up. He has allowed Assyria to come in and ravage the city. He's now allowed Babylon to come in, and they've taken all the good ones off, all the doctors, all the intellectuals, anything of value to the city has been taken into exile with them. And there's a remnant that's left of God's people that are still in the city, but it's absolute terror. It's absolute, absolutely in ruins. And so by the time we get to Isaiah 52, the, the first part of Isaiah lays out the warnings and, and, and what's going to come of this. And starting in about verse uh, chapter 40, if I remember right, the, the book ends on all these notes of hope and where this is going to go. And so Isaiah gives us this poem to, gives us this poem to express what it is that he is feeling in his vision as he sees that God is acting. So this is the vision he gets, and we'll, we'll pick it up We'll pick it up in Isaiah 52, 7. I just want to read you. Think, think of that, though. I, I want you to feel the weight of hope that he has in this vision. Listen to how he says it. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of the watchman, the one who would have been on the top of the, top, the, the walls looking out, the voice of your watchman, they lift up their voice and together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. They're foreshadowing Palm Sunday. They're foreshadowing when God will come, when Jesus will come into, of course, he didn't have that name, but when Jesus would come into the city as a liberator for a people who had failed God, who could not measure up. This is the hope that they have. This is the hope that he has. Isaiah loves runners, apparently. But this idea that this runner is coming in, he says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who comes. How beautiful are the ultrasound technicians who bring good news at the worst possible spot. I spent years as a print designer, and so I love the publishing language. There's, there's something permanent about putting it in ink. 
He comes and he, he, he promises, he publishes peace. He publishes salvation. This isn't going to be mere speculation. This is a faithful God acting on their behalf. And this is all written about 750 years in advance of Palm Sunday, in advance of when he's coming. So they've been waiting, not five days like my wife and I were, but about 750 years between the exile and when Jesus boards that cult, boards, mounts, mounts that cult, and comes, and comes into the city, and comes into the city, Palm Sunday is the coming of the rescuer and the coming of the king. And Jesus is going to enter his city like a king because I told you he was intentional. And he's going to be crowned in this city. And by the end of the week, they'll be putting signs above his head that say that he is the king of the Jews. They'll be putting crowns on his head done by the Roman government to let us know that he is the king of the Jews. It goes exactly like they expected, right? He's going to come in and he's going to reconcile these people to God. But of course, as Jesus was coming into the city as a king, he was going to be run out of it as a criminal. Convicted, sentenced by the state to be executed, The Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, of course, are accusing him of blasphemy, which the Romans could care less about. But the charge that gets him executed by the state is a political charge. It's his claim of kingship that they have a problem with. That's an issue for them. And so when he's brought before Pilate, he's brought before Pilate on the political charge. He claims to be king, What do you think of that, Pilate? What does the Roman government want to do with that? And of course, he's put to death. This is why he's coming in, though, to show his kingship. This is why he sends his two disciples in advance to fulfill Zechariah, find a colt tied, and bring him back to me, because that's how I'll go in. This is why the crowds take their cloaks and throw them on the road in front of him. It's welcoming of a king. This is why they threw it on the back of the the, the donkey to welcome their king. This is why the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving palm branches. I think John's the only one that records the palm branches. But he is picking up on the idea that the Maccabeans, when they're celebrating their victory over their oppressors, Judas Maccabees, when they're they're celebrating their victory over their outside oppressors, he does it by stamping palms into their coins. And they're picking up on this idea of waving palms because they are celebrating the fact that Jesus is coming in as their king, And he's coming in to take over politically. That's what they assume. But they're welcoming their king. They may be wrong, but they're welcoming their king. 
So I thought with that in mind, it'd be appropriate to wrap up by at least reading one of the accounts. We've got four. We've got four. And I had to pick out my favorite. And, um, you know, I named my second son Luke. <laughs> in fact, we named him for Luke 19.40, the last verse in this section, uh, because we wanted him, when everyone else was silent, to be the one who would cry out that Jesus is king. Sorry. Here we go. <laughs> that Jesus is king. If anyone else was silent, that he would cry out. And so we'll, we'll close with this. This is Luke 19, verse 28 through 40. Listen to this, and, and listen to this with the hope that it brings that Jesus comes into the city as our redeeming king. Listen to this. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where you are entering, and you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? This is Grand Theft Colt. And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the mountain of olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace be in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That is my prayer for you. Not only that you would not be silent, but that you would see him not as your accomplice, but your king. Yield to your king and worship your king. He's faithful and he loves you. And, he's, and, and in doing this, in coming into the city that way, he came to reconcile all of us to him.